Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1384 entitled Monique Robert Fighter. <laughs> Our podcast title is Do Jandroids Dream of Eclectic Pods? I am Rob Jan and flying Jan Solo today. Our co-host Megan McHugh is on an away team, on a mission. Now, what you heard there as we went into the start of the show was a bit of the theme of Marvel's What If animated series by Matthew Newsom. And why am I talking about that today? Well, Marvel's What If streaming on Disney Plus is a nine-episode animated series that dropped in late 2021, and there's a second season to follow in 2022. It's not solely based on the long-running series of one-shot Marvel comics, and it does reach out for inspiration from other story forms, such as the popular Marvel Zombies arc, which has now produced dozens of comic book miniseries over more than a decade. What if does what it says on the tin, which is to say it postulates counterfactual alternative histories to events and characters already established in the admittedly loose and highly elastic continuity of the mainstream Marvel universe. Now, this is outside of Marvel where you've also got a, an ever-popular and prolific trope in the field of science fiction stories, novels and media. So, you know, all that counterfactual stuff already well-established elsewhere. It's a particularly prominent trope for sci-fi television shows, perhaps the most obvious one being Star Trek's infamous Mirrorverse, where a, a change in the timeline leads the generally utopian and benevolent United Federation of Planets to become a, a dystopia of all-conquering evil, a dark empire. Now, the actors in these things usually have a lot of wicked fun playing naughty versions of their beloved characters, and the audience is a pretty good time enjoying the bad. They're safe in the knowledge that things will be set to rights by the end of the episode, or perhaps sometimes the season, as we've seen in Star Trek Discovery, for example. And why it's even a strong element of the second season of Star Trek Picard, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime. It's a, a common and inevitably terrifying example is what if the Nazis won World War II? I've kind of lost count of the number of inevitably grim books and movies and TV shows that are based on that particular horrific premise. Anyway, speaking of World War II, the first episode of the What If animated series featured the dazzling idea, what if Captain Carter was the first Avenger. And that is, where would we be if the Allies' Strategic Scientific Reserve Special Operations Group agent Peggy Carter had received the Super Soldier Serum instead of Private Steve Rogers? 
and she became the enhanced super-powered fighter Captain Carter. It's a great idea, and it was very popular. So let's have a bit of the Captain Carter theme from Marvel Studios' What If. This is Sir Derek Jacobi. Zero G or not zero G? That is the question. Yeah, and there is no answer to that apart from the fact that there is definitely a track called the Captain Carter theme from Marvel Studios' What If? And that came from a single version, which is done by a group called Shadow 4 Strider, or possibly 4 Shadow Strider. Anyway, there's a number 4 in the shadow in place of the first A, so I'm not really quite sure what they're going to do with that, but it doesn't matter. It's all about counterfactuals. I've been talking here on Zero G about the Marvel animated series What If, and particularly the first episode of the first season, What If Captain Carter Was the First Avenger? So that was a particularly well-received episode of the animation with actress Hayley Atwell returning to voice her by now well-seasoned Marvel Cinematic Universe character Meg or Peg, sorry, Margaret Peggy Carter. Atwell has played Carter across the multiple Marvel movies, including her first appearance as the character in the feature film Captain America, the first Avenger. At least one live-action short Marvel film, you know, the ones that they stick on the ends of the DVDs. And she's also cameoed in the long-running Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. television series and, of course, was the star of her own spin-off series, Agent Carter, which is a superb show set in late period 1940s New York and then in Los Angeles in a charmingly inventive but all too brief two-season run. And that series incidentally meant that Atwell was the first woman to headline a character in the MCU before Captain Marvel and Black Widow. And the alternative universe Captain Carter appeared again in the ninth episode of What If as a key member of the newly formed Guardians of the Multiverse team. And oh yeah, there's a a six-inch Marvel Legends action figure of Captain Carter and even a larger hot toy. You know you are on the stage when you've got a hot toy made from your character. Now, with a Marvel Zombies animated series already underway, I do wonder if Captain Carter wouldn't also be ideal for a similar adaptation or perhaps even a live-action television show. But parallel to that, and what is the concept of a multiverse about parallels. We've seen Captain Carter enigmatically teased to perhaps appear in the upcoming live action movie Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And we're basing this upon the unmistakable presence of her distinctly decorated shield on the poster for the movie. Captain Carter being British has a Union Jack emblazoned on the iconic round vibranium shield instead of Steve Rogers' American Stars and Stripes. Well, gosh. (laughs) Now, multiverses, of course, uh, they're all the rage in the MCU at the present with their Time Lord-like regenerative capacity to recast characters with different actors in roles that were seemingly set in stone. Uh, Witness the blooming of the concept on screen, at least, in the animated What If series and Spider-Man Into the Multiverse. What a great film that was. And, of course, the equally impressive live-action Spider-Man No Way Home, and, of course, the streaming series Loki, where the variants 
pop up with even more dizzying speed. Let he who was without a doppelganger cast the first Hiddlestone. Now, all of this is not just to bring you up to speed with a just-released Marvel comic Captain Carter, but I'll go there anyway. It's a spiffing yarn, if ever there was one, and a natural prequel and maybe a sequel to What If. Issue 1 has just hit the shelves. So we'll get into that in a moment. But first I thought I'd play a track here from Kate Nix. And this is from her album, What Would Peggy Carter Do? Well, okay, less than an album, more of a single. And this is indeed, What Would Peggy Carter Do? I think she's a bit of a fan. Hello, you little lovelies. This is your old fat auntie Jack on Radio Free Triple R. You're listening to Zero G, and if you don't listen to it closely, I'm going to jump through your speakers and rip your bloody arms off. And I will too. Won't I, Robert? Jack, we know you'll be back. Though you're ten feet tall, you don't scare us at all. You're big, bold, and yeah. Auntie Jack, Australia's original superhero there. We've been talking about Captain Carter, the comic book and the appearances of the character in the Marvel What If animated series here on Zero G today. Now, Peggy Carter has her own comic book. Well, she's kind of had some along the way with uh, Agent Carter and now with the Captain Carter new book that just dropped. Issue one has just hit the shelves. I got my copy from All Star Comics and Jamie McKelvey is the writer. Also the designer of the newspaper collage background on the cover and uh, he is a writer who has created things like characters and stories for the Young Avengers comics uh, Wicked plus The Divine and Suburban Glamour. These are some of his own creations outside of the Marvel Universe. And also done, done a lot of character design too, like uh, the redesign for Carol Danvers in 2012, uh, Captain Marvel, of course, and uh, Kamala Khan's gear when she became Ms. Marvel back in 2013. Two interlinked characters there. Obviously also features in the MCU too. So he's had influences upon the movie versions by creating these other costumes earlier along. Now, Marika Cresta is the artist for this book. Uh, we know her from Star Wars' Dr. Aphra and Women of Marvel specials as well as Power Pack. Eric Arseniga is the colourist on this and VC's Clayton Cowles is the letterer. Now, I've noted VC's somebody or other in comic book lettering credits for a while on Zero G without actually clocking what it stands for. VC equals virtual calligraphy, and that's Chris Elipolis's lettering studio, which includes people like Clayton Cowles, and they work with a lot of computer fonts, basically, because that's sort of the go-to now for comic books. It's a lot faster. And you can use in-house lettering styles, as have been evolved for Marvel, as well as you can still do the hand-drawn lettering too. Sometimes it's um, required for certain types of books or 
Sometimes the artist and the uh, the writer get together and say, no, no, we want to have this as hand-lettered. Although it's kind of away from the golden days, I suppose you could call them, where they used to uh, do the whole thing. Certain comic book artists and writers would also do the lettering. I'm thinking of Jack Kirby, actually, <laughs> right there. So in the What If animated series, Captain Carter pops back to Earth after entering another dimension in World War II to fight a Cthulhu-like tentacle monster summoned by Hydra, the nemesis of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, that was a good way of riffing off the story arc of Captain America. So, in this comic book, she was frozen in ice after stopping a Hydra plane load of weapons of mass destruction in World War II, which is rather closer to Steve Rogers' MCU transition. Does this make the comic book a variant of a variant? (laughs) Why not? Doctor Stranger things have happened in Marvel. And even as the great powers haggled over her thawed presence, no, she's just come out of the ice. She's got nothing to do with the God of Thunder. She's still recovering from a long hibernation. You can see she's not going to put up with any nonsense in the 21st century. So she opts to return to London since she's still a British citizen. And she sets up shop there. And she, of course, undergoes many of the same things that Steve Rogers went through when he was a man out of time. Uh, Mobile phones that people don't make calls on but seem to be holding up all the time. Uh, Pizza! (laughs) And, you know, just general life in the 21st century. Future shock. She's trying to land on her feet. And as uh, Hayley Atwell said, to paraphrase Ginger Rogers' comment... Um, She had to do everything that Fred Astaire did, only backwards and wearing heels. And this is the case with Captain Carter. Now, it's a new century, but in some cases there's the same old sexism, which is pretty disappointing. But nevertheless, you know, she doesn't have to fight that unless it would still be around. Uh, You know, it's a little bit more like the... uh, recent Captain Marvel comics in her daily trials, come to think of it. Oh, and there's Media Celebrity, which Peggy Carter certainly has to deal with in this new incarnation. Now, the dynamic artwork for the story is clearly riffing off the animated series. It's very clean-limbed and the computer shading is pretty much just there to give you the illusion of movement and depth. And the cover actually also, apart from the newspaper collage, also features Captain Carter drawn straight from the What If series. So, yes, there are variant covers, as you'd expect, but a little more uh, (laughs) to the point here than in other comic books. And it seems that Hydra has endured and is still causing trouble. Or has it? The British Prime Minister in the story, PM Will Williams, seems to have his own agenda for Captain Carter. Is he manipulating her like Steve Rogers was in the MCU by Nick Fury and the S.H.I.E.L.D. agency? Only a second issue will tell. If that, who knows how long it will run for. I did enjoy this book. Look, one book is not really enough to give the flavour of the thing. But look, I really did enjoy the Agent Carter series and I'm really enjoying this new setup. For the character. Long may she live, Agent Carter. And also now, Captain Carter in her own book comes out from Marvel Comics. All right, let's have a daily Bowie or a weekly David Bowie track here 
today. And this is Battle for Britain and uh, subtitled The Letter. Now, this comes from a great big compilation of Bowie tracks and this is called Brilliant Adventure, 1992 to 2001, the album in itself. But this is remastered version of Battle for Britain. Hey, this is Great Charles, Dave Liston off Red Dwarf. You're listening to Space Corps Directive 3 Triple R FM. So smeg and get on with it. Yes, sir, Mr Lister. Battle for Britain, the letter in quotation marks, written by David Bowie Reeves, Gabriel's Mark Platy back in 1997, actually, the, uh, the third track on the Earthling album, although this particular remastered version came from a big compilation set uh, from Bowie, The Brilliant Adventure, 1992 to 2001. One of those cut-up songs where he's cutting and pasting lyrics and also electronically as well, the, uh, the music too. You can hear that in there, the story of an expat writing a letter back home to Britain. I thought that would be appropriate for Captain Carter. A little discussion before there on Zero G today. I'm Rob Jam, and I stumbled across, quite literally, a movie on Netflix that I wanted to talk about. You know, sometimes the old netty's quite fun for that sort of thing. I absolutely know nothing about this film. Well, I know something about it now after having watched it and done a, a little bit of study. And quite amazing, really. And it's an awkward movie. And you may or may not like it. Well, that's just natural, isn't it? It's Everybody brings their own sized popcorn and flavoured chop top to the cinema or sits on their own particular part of the couch on the sofa. But just don't sit on Sheldon Cooper's spot. That's all I ask. In this case, it is an awkward film. And I liked it and I didn't like it at the same time. And that sort of, yeah, nah, maybe feeling is actually pretty good for Zero G when you think about it. So we're going to look at this one. And it is called, and this is just one word, so it's not two words, although it sounds like it, Big Bug. So Big Bug. Now, it's set in the future and that's what attracted me to it. I thought, oh, yes, I see. It's got robots. It's set in 2045. I had no idea that it was set in Paris, France, and I had no idea that it was written and directed by Jean-Pierre Genet. So thinking, wow, (laughs) where has this film been? And this is like his first film in just under a decade, and he's been having a lot of difficulties getting his whimsical, surreal and sometimes absurd concepts adapted to the screen he's been having trouble getting the funding for it and he jokingly said at one stage well there's always netflix and here it is <laughs> so you know this is something that the streaming services all of them can do quite well so it's a bit of an experiment this one at the same time it is extremely accessible and naturally it's quirky and whimsical but you know that's pretty much a given for Genet's films. Now, we know his films from the genre before. Fantasy, science fiction films and all of them sort of blending into a very real world situation 
the same time. Or not, as the case may be. 1991, there was Delicatessen, and he worked on that with his frequent collaborator, Mark Caro, and that was the one that sort of set in a dystopic, sort of post-apocalyptic world, and quite literally about to serving man, <laughs> in a literal sense, as it is a cannibalistic restaurant that is the subject of the story. Then, of course, he worked with Mark Caro again with City of Lost Children in 1995, and that is what it is, and it's a very much a science fiction and fantasy story. And then sort of came a bit of a cropper, becoming the fourth director to work on an alien film franchise, Alien Resurrection, back in 1997. And there's a long story about that, and Alien fans are still disputing that one, and there's studio interference and so on, and, you know, rewritten scripts and all sorts of things. But, you know, Alien Resurrection is the result of collaboration with him and other people, many other people along the way. So it is what it is, and we'll leave that to one side, except to note that it is another science fiction film. Then, of course, there is the 2001 film Emily, which is one of those films that when the director does it, it just suddenly just becomes this great big hit, and, you know, it has been uh, on many greatest films lists and widely and regarded as his best film and I can see why, you know, a couple of Academy Award nominations went his way and everybody seemed to love that film. And I think there is a lot to love about that, including the soundtrack as well. So we will give you a track here from Jean-Pierre Genet's film, Amelie. And this is the track, uh, La d'Amelie. And this is a an orchestral version of the track. A little bit whimsical, a little bit fun. And where does this one come from? It is from an album called... Let's go for the translation. The Fabulous Destiny of Amelie. And this is by Jan Tiersen. Hello, this is Paul McGann. The I am with Neil and I. And I wouldn't listen to 3 FM without serious medication. I'm medicating you here today, Rob Jan, Zero G, Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio. And we are talking about a science fiction film here. But we just played a track from Jean-Pierre Genet's Amelie hit film just before then. So, look, that director has done quite a bit in the science fiction and fantasy genre. And we talked about Delicatessen before, City of Lost Children, uh, Alien Resurrection. There are a few others too. 2009 uh, Micmacs, which is actually about um, a quite intricate plot to destroy a couple of weapons manufacturers. So really leaning into the science capabilities there. And then there's the young and prodigious T.S. Spivet in 2013, book adaptation. And the idea of that one, it's about uh, a young inventor of an idea for a perpetual motion machine, as absurd as that is. So there's a few other short films and so on that would uh, certainly fit into the category of genre. So 
we'll go on to the film, the Netflix film, uh, Big Bug. And this is uh, dropped this year. And that's where I found it. I thought, oh, knew nothing absolutely about it. It is set in 2045. And there's some excellent world building going on in here and quite amusing too. It's basically a French farce, a bedroom comedy, but with robots and artificial intelligence featuring heavily in it. Now, you know, that's not really an unusual trope. There are so many movies that revolve around this idea. You know, go back to uh, 1927's Metropolis with Fritz Lang, or you could definitely circle through the French classic Alphaville in 1965. And I also think of Jacques Tati's Playtime when I think about this movie too. So a little bit of a cross between all those sorts of things. The household that features as the setting for this, and it literally does, you don't go outside of this household very much. It's set in the suburbs of Paris. Uh, They're all kind of pretty closely identical, not exactly ticky-tacky, but uh, technicolour boxes out there in the lawns of a globally warmed world, which means that air conditioning is a must-have. And the world building, as I was saying, is actually particularly good. Um, Few people write longhand anymore at all. Paperback books are rare. Uh, They eat insects as a fairly practical and pragmatic way of minimising environmental footprints. The house computer can spray scents into the air to conjure up moods like uh, freshly mown grass. And, of course, the domestic robots are not always, but largely in human form. So, basically, actors playing androids, as usual. Now... There are also a wide range of other bots in the household, from domestic cleaning robots who are more sort of usey form, practical things with tracks and uh, multiple arms and appliances and and connections and things, and and also some other older robots and uh, a rather surreal creation of Albert Einstein's head mounted on a sort of a claw-like basis, which is a little bit like um, one of the characters from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie or creepily a bit too close to one of the monsters in John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, the one spider head. (laughs) But actually a lot more benign than any of those things. It's actually a really impressive realisation of the future suburbs. And, you know, the domestic robots can use their fingers to power various appliances, like a set of multi-tools with one battery that you can swap around. The robots can even read their human master's feelings from a variety of sensory inputs, and they're always comically categorising what their human masters are feeling. Uh, Are they exactly human masters? Well, yes and no. This is on a cusp here. And what happens when there's a robot-android revolution going on outside of the house is that a bunch of humans get caught in this particular household as the house goes into lockdown to protect the people inside. So it's about a bunch of people and in certain groups, so distinct groups. There are basically four of them. Uh, There's a, a couple of single parents 
and their teenage children and also some of the groupings of robots as well that we'll call uh, the household robots another group. And then there's one final grouping of a neighbour who's popped over. She's looking for her dog, Toby, and she gets caught in the house too when it goes into lockdown. So far, so good. I actually like this idea. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at those uh, uh, movies that, or stories that are set in a bottle in this case. And the cyborgs outside, well, I shouldn't really call them cyborgs, but they are robots. Um, they look a bit like Robocop, you know. Uh, they're called the uh, Yonics, and they're the ones who are doing the big revolution outside of the house, which impinges upon the inside in that the house gets the doors locked and the air conditioning goes off, which is actually quite critical. So it's a bit of a pressure cooker, quite literally, as the temperature goes up and up inside the house. This is, of course, a device that also serves for the characters to shed some clothing. So, yes, there is some nudity in this one. So if that sort of freaks you out, well, yeah, watch out for it. And I did say it was a bedroom comedy, so there is some sex play in the story as well. All of that I actually found kind of, yeah, well, I, I see where this is all going and that's fine. And actually surprised me a little bit to see it in one of Jeannot's films. But, you know, he's playing it for comic effect. As I was saying, world building is quite critical in this, like uh, micro drones that fly around the house like annoying little insects. And the fact that they routinely clone their deceased pets, the neighbour with her dog Toby, she's up to number six, 6.0 Toby. There are a lot of tropes in this. Uh, the morose teen boy who's overcome with utopian ennui and wants nothing better than to upload his consciousness into an AI himself at one stage. Uh, the the housewife in the who owns the actual house, uh, she's a bit of a nostalgist. She likes to write things out longhand and also has a collection of books passed down from her grandmother. You know, there's all these little tropes that uh, come into play. Now, the actors in this, uh, Isabelle Nanti plays Francois. Now, she's a well-known actress and director in France and seen her before in uh, Le Visiteurs and the, the time travel uh, story and also um, uh, some of the Asterix and Obelix movies too. And she's a, a wonderful veteran of the field and gets to have a lot of play here, a lot of sport in her story, quite literally, as she has a relationship with her household sports instructor android too. So, you know, we're talking about the boundary between humans and machine here quite a bit as the household bots are also trying to become a bit more human and so relate to the their charges inside of the house, and I don't mean just the battery charges, Elizabeth Zeilberstein plays Alice, the single mother who owns the house. She's been in a huge amount of things, far too many for me to list here, but she's a formidable presence in this story. Not too far away from one of the main characters in uh, The Visitors. She's trying to get it all sorted out. And she is involved with... Max Stefan de Groot, uh, who's a Belgian comedian and humorist and also a racing car driver at one stage in the actor's career. He too has been in some of the Asterix movies as well. And he has the hots for 
Alice. And that's pretty much the major component of his character, except he is also a single parent, so of course brings in his teenage child to uh, enter the mix. And that's where another couple comes from in this story, the uh, the teenage boy and girl. Actually, the boy bears a little bit of um, resemblance to Timothy Chamolet, at least I thought so. Uh, another couple in this is uh, Yusuf... Haji playing Victor, and I've seen that actor before in the charming, extraordinary adventures of Adele Blanc-Sec. He's also played a part in that uh, well-received thriller series, Spiral. Now, he is Alice's ex, and he's just dropped by to show off his new partner, uh, Claire Chust, who's playing uh, Jennifer. And they're going off to get married in some utopian resort somewhere, but they never get there because of the lockdown in the house. Uh, also appearing in this story, uh, Francois Levantel, another absolutely vintage actor. He's playing one of the Yonix robots. And uh, he is a piece of work in this. And they just love to focus upon his toothy grin in it to great effect, I thought. Quite scary too. If you remember some of the killer mechanoids in uh, Red Dwarf, the series, he's one of he's like one of those. Uh, what was its name? Hudson was a particularly nasty one, and he just has a hell of a time here. One of the manifestations of the wider robot revolution is done in a fairly clever way, so they don't actually have to show large scale attacks upon the human race. We see the robot revolution in a series of propaganda ads over the house's internal video screens, you know, like um, humans in zoos, humans being walked on laser leashes, androids enduring patois de gras made from humans. Um, So, yeah, it's actually quite a a clever little dodge to do that. They don't have to do too much beyond that to show that uh, things are in a bad way. And uh, another... Actor is uh, Alban Lenoir playing Greg the sports android. And, you know, this is a, a movie that has a lot to say about the relationships between humans and robots. And its main spokesperson, apart from the, the, uh, the less human mechanoids, is Claude Perron playing Monique. Now, before you could say uh, uh, the... Uh, the word that would summon the character in The Good Place, Janet, before you could say, bong, Claude Perron's android is not exactly cast from the same mould as that AI, but a little bit more along the way of, say, um, Ex Machina or uh, even... um, well, maybe uh, one of the Terminators. But she's not the actual evil protagonist in this. She's a much more benign creation. Somewhere on the spectrum of being close to one of those androids from the um, the various human series that we've seen, different incarnations of those. Not being human... Um, but the uh, you know the Scandinavian one that's um, been uh, reproduced as a, as an English language show as well. So anyway, um, just to move along from that, she's Claude Perron. I have seen before in the two thousand and nine 
zombie police procedural movie, La Horde. I think she came to an unhappy ending in that one. In fact, I know that she did in that. But she was also in um, uh, Amelie too. So, uh, you know, there's a bit of a... Bring in your old mates from previous films. They're going on for Jean-Pierre, you know, in this context. Uh, she is great in this film. Um, not as scary as the Yonix leader, but she has a, a, a smile that is a character in itself in this. They all do a terrific job circulating around in this. As I said, it's a, a bit of a bedroom farce. Um, that aspect of it didn't actually appeal to me as much as the world building and the actual characterizations of the various people and robots in this. So I was quite fascinated by it. It's got a tremendously gorgeous colour palette too. Uh, a bit like a, I was going to say a, a tutti frutti ice cream, but uh, maybe a Jacques Tati ice cream as well. There's something of the 80s science fiction film about this too that I felt was uh, very strongly present by the fact that it's got a fairly limited number of casts. But it's right up there with uh, all of the ideas of having a great world building building background and billing too because there's constant advertisements uh, machines floating outside of the house uh, a little bit like um, Blade Runner I suppose that uh, provide mobile billboards always trying to get your money (laughs) so I thought that this was a a fairly good physical comedy there's some laugh out loud moments not all of the jokes land where you would like them to and some of them are a bit cliched in terms of robots and humans and, you know, but I enjoyed it anyway. It was a, a delight to discover on Netflix, having heard nothing about it at all. Not about the uh, the development of it or the cast or even the fact that Jean-Pierre Genet is do, did the damn thing. You know, I mean, that's unusual. Kind of like, think like uh, Black Mirror crossed with Red Dwarf and, you know, without perhaps some of the uh, the best graces of those shows and maybe with a couple of the worst excesses of them, but nevertheless, uh, I I did enjoy it a lot. I thought that um, it could have been better, but for a film that I didn't know anything about, I actually enjoyed it to the extent that I would go on the zero-G scale of, yeah, nah, maybe. Yeah, uh, maybe. (laughs) So you have been warned. Just let me caution you about it. And speaking of Lemmy Caution, I will play you a track from the original Alphaville soundtrack album of uh, Jean-Luc Godard's famous 1965 science fiction classic about a rogue AI. And if you remember the distinctive voice of the machine that ruled Alphaville in that one, uh, no, it's kind of it is kind of referenced in uh, the vocals in this new movie, uh, Big Bug. They also reference the uh, artificial speech of Colossus, the giant computer in the uh, 1970s science fiction film, Colossus, the Forbin Project. Ooh, that one's going back away too. Oh, well, let's have a track from that, which is um, uh, La Ville Inhumaine, the, the, uh, the Villa of the Inhuman by Paul Misraki from the original soundtrack of... Alphaville. Hmm. Broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3RRR-FM. SOS! SOS! Mayday! Help! 
I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Panic mode. Get me the hell out of here! Yeah, well, a little bit of uh, the Alphaville soundtrack from 1965, Paul Misraki, the inhumane a remastered version, at least of that classic AI soundtrack, or AE, as I like to call it, because it's always got something evil about it. It shouldn't always be like that. I think we should have a few more utopian visions and... Of course, the only reason in science fiction we have utopian visions is to make it go wrong. <laughs> so, and speaking of utopian visions, Astral Glamour is coming up next with Joe Brunatic. So that's about it for me, Rob Jan, today here on Zero G. Next week, we shall be talking about, I believe, the South Korean zombie high school TV series All of Us Are Dead and Star Trek Picard Season 2 and maybe some other things along the way. We're going to go out with a bit of a sing-along from none other than Boba Fett. (laughs) And this is Tamura Morrison, the actor who plays Boba in the new Book of Boba Fett series. Uh, He has a set of pipes as well as a set of Beskar armour, and he is doing a cover version of Let It Be here. All right. Until next week, thank you to Megan McHugh, our co-host, and to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.